Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence. So you may find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West Africa edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll explore the question of what is the big picture? Joining me as we unpack this question are Abdulkadir Sambo, who's currently working on the Managing Conflict in Nigeria MCN program, implemented by the British Council and funded by the EU. And we also have Bulama Bukarti, who's a senior analyst at Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. So let's get started. We've seen recently that Daesh has focused increasingly more on Africa. So from encouraging its fighters to migrate here in order to establish a new strong base of operations. We've also seen in Daesh's propaganda videos around Africa, the land of Hijra and Jihad. So listeners may be asking, why Africa? Why is Daesh increasingly growing its interest on the continent? And what could be some of the reasons for this? Bulama, why don't you get us started? In the context about the relationship between ISWAP and Daesh and other affiliates in Africa, what is this growing relationship and interest on the continent? Uh, Sure. Uh, Fatima, you made a very important point in the introduction, which is the fact that ISIS is moving towards Africa, shifting uh, increasingly towards Africa. And this is unfortunate, but not a great surprise, because this is something we have seen coming since the loss of its territory in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. uh, We have predicted, including in writing in some of my publications at the Tony Blair Institute, that ISIS will now move increasingly towards Africa. And the question is why? The simple answer is that Africa has all the vulnerabilities that made Afghanistan a hotspot for terrorism. And so if Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, who had been hotspots for terrorism, no longer sell because of uh, U.S. and its allies' activities there, uh, especially in Iraq and Syria, the natural place is another area where the same vulnerabilities exist. What are those vulnerabilities? Number one is the question of weak governance and porous borders, borders through which anything can be carried, in or out. Secondly, there are millions of young people who cannot be employed, who cannot earn a livelihood, and millions of them hold Islam dear, which is a peaceful religion we must emphasize, but most of them are ignorant of Islam. And activism plus ignorance is a storm for violence, is the perfect formula for radicalization. And so you have this bulging youth population without a job, without good quality education, whether of Islam or conventional systems. So these are some of the factors that have made Africa attractive. And unfortunately, like you said, ISIS is growing about six affiliates now on the continent. Thank you so much, Vilama, uh, uh, as always, for, for those insights. Sambo, Abdelghadir, uh, you are on the ground in, in uh, northeastern Nigeria as well. How are you seeing some of these relationships and, and affiliation with Daesh playing out in the region that you're in? Just to add to what Bulama has said, you know, with the collapse of effort by military onslaught on Daesh, especially in the Middle East, we know that what will happen next is where there are available facilities in terms of land, in terms of human resources. Uh, These um, militants can now come and localize themselves. And, you know, with what happened in Libya, the continent of Africa has become so porous, especially around the Chad. What actually uh, interests uh, terrorism in those places, especially for Daesh, is, of course, the presence of natural resources. When you 
combine just not a lack of education for young persons, but also high-level poverty, where not only people that didn't go to school, but also those that have gone to school, those that have certificate but cannot actually take care of themselves. Where do they go to? They are looking for incentives in terms of how to be alive, in terms of how to make sure that they also achieve their self-esteem. So uh, we have seen this coming, that with the problem in the Northeast, of course, Daesh activities will roll over to, in particular, uh, the African continent. And we have seen this now, not only in West Africa, but also in the North Africa. Uh, we have a smaller splinter of terrorist groups we know in Uganda, for example, in Congo and in Somalia. So what they are trying to do with what is happening in 2021 and now 2022 is to consolidate, especially within the lecture region. And with the killing of Shekau 2021, we have seen uh, so many um, members of these groups, especially Iswa, that were pre previously out for one reason or the other, but are now coming back because of the different structuring, because of the different incentives and the available, of course, facility within the lecture that they can leave where communities are also embarrassing some of these strategies. So... I think we have seen the growing influence and control of Daesh within the African continent and especially within the lecture. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with your points, Abdul Qadir, and especially the first one, the question of huge ungoverned territories, or you say huge portions of land. And that's partly because African countries are very big. Abdul Qadir spoke about the DRC, the Democratic Republic of... Now, Congo has this ISIS affiliate called the Allied Democratic Forces, called the ADF, that established a link with ISIS from 2018-2019. Of course, it, it's a group that has been existing since the 90s. But what we saw immediately after its alliance to ISIS is a growth in its sophistication, escalation in its sophistication and its expansion, but also in its ability to attract recruits from across the African continent, whether from Tanzania, from Rwanda, even from Kenya. In fact, there is a Jordanian that was arrested in the ADF. Now, if you take the Democratic Republic of Congo alone, it is like 10 times bigger than the United Kingdom or four times bigger than France. And that's one of the factors facilitating terrorist organizations. No, you both make um, some really important points. And you both talked about this expansion and this consolidation that ISWAP is doing. What I'm wondering from your expert views and insights, have we seen a shift though in their strategy in 2022? So for instance, are they moving and more focusing on urban areas? How has their strategy matured and changed in this year? And are we likely to see any changes in their modus operandi moving forward? ISIS affiliates across Africa do not have one mode of operation. And that's why when I'm asked to describe the relationship between African affiliates and the ISIS central, I would say it's a marriage of convenience. Uh, ISIS has become like a gig terrorism platform, if, if you like, or an adhocratic arrangement in the sense that ISIS provides the platform while local groups with expansive local contacts and deep-rooted local history, then use that platform to roll out their own mode of operation. That doesn't mean they don't get guided by ISIS Central, but they don't get controlled by, by ISIS Central. So, for example, in the case of ISWAP, one of its key differences with the Sheikh faction of Boko Haram is the fact that ISWAP does not deliberately target civilians. That is their publicly declared policy 
which the data shows has only been violated a couple of times. So they are broadly within that mode of operation of not attacking civilians. And that's very dangerous because they are succeeding in winning the hearts and minds of local populations. Now, when you look at other ISIS affiliates, like the one in the DRC, that's the ADF, or even the ISIS affiliate not next to ISWAB, which is the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, you would find out that those groups deliberately target civilians. And ISIS doesn't have a problem with either, apparently. And so that's why I say it's a gig terrorism plan. But when we come back to the question of ISWAP, we have seen a shift in their mode of operation over the last 12 to 18 months, especially from May 2020, when they killed uh, Shekau, that's the brutal leader of Boko Haram that had been a leader since 2010, 2011, who had been a leader of the group uh, for 11 years, later became a factional leader because ISIS uh, withdrew its recognition of him. After they killed him, they took over almost 70% of his fighters and resources. And then we saw ISWAP starting to launch suicide bombers. ISWAP was never known for suicide bombing until recently. Of course, they mostly focus their suicide bombing on security forces, but they are starting suicide bombing. The second thing we saw over the last 12 months or so is an expansion from its core of operation in the northeastern part of Nigeria to the north central and even the northwestern part of Nigeria. And that's why we saw ISWAP claiming attack in places like Koji State, which is in north central Nigeria. They have claimed almost, uh, I think, five to six attacks over the last six or so months in Koji State, north central Nigeria. They have claimed attacks in Abuja, which is Nigeria's capital, and they are moving south. For example, in southern Nigeria, when Oshun was at, uh, the, a church was uh, attacked in Oo, Oshun State, about six, uh, 50 worshippers were killed earlier this year. The government blamed it on ISWAP, and then we later saw ISWAP claiming attacks in southern Nigerian states. Even during Boko Haram's heydays in 2013, 2014, 2015, they never had this large area of operation like ISWAP is having now. And so we know that that mode of operation is changing. That's the expansion. And the third thing I would mention, which is the final one, is what I spoke to at the top. ISWAP is continuing its strategy of winning the hearts and minds of local people. And we see that in them rolling out preachers who go to villages and preach to people to convert to their version of Islam and migrate to their territory or recognize the ISWAP territory. We see them deploying preachers to highways. They stop motorists on commercial, uh, they stop commercial vehicles, preach to the passengers, uh, distribute flyers or other materials, and then let them go. But they are also engaged in big-time charity. From June, July last year, ISWAP started focusing attacks on humanitarian workers in the Lake Chad region, which is something we did not see before then. They publicly declared that humanitarian workers have become enemies, and ISIS in its August edition last year endorsed ISWAP's modus operandi of starting to kill humanitarian workers and call on its other provinces to do the same. Now, the point I am making in terms of strategy is that they are not just killing humanitarian workers for the purpose of killing them. They are killing them partly in order to monopolize charity in the lecture region. So they would be the only persons giving out charity. They collect zakat from rich individuals in areas they control and distribute them to poor people in the lecture region. That's a way of preaching their ideology and 
showing or showcasing how their caliphate would work if they got to consolidate it. And so that battle for the hearts and minds is going on, is getting more and more consolidated since Shekau was killed. And it's the most dangerous aspect of the war. I think what, what I will add is that there is no simple way or one way to say this is the way that either ISIS or ISWAP operates, um, ISIS globally in particular, and ISWAP in the lecture in, and in Nigeria. We have seen, of course, even before the birth of ISWAP in the lecture, how the issue ISIS members were, you know, targeting humanitarian workers, were targeting other uh, vulnerable groups in the Middle East. Um, I think from lessons we have seen when the international community led by the US uh, government was heading toward ISIS in the Middle East in under. They, they, they are collapsed in 2017. Uh, the very good lesson was that there was no deliberate counter in terms of minor groups that are, you know, split across Arabs and in particular in Africa. So no measure was taken to make sure that there is no split in terms of what is happening, you know, despite um, that there is a recognized porosity in terms of a border in almost all the African continent and in particular the lecture. Another very important factor that happened just a few years ago is uh, the COVID-19 situation when uh, the global community of course, was focusing on how to contain, you know, COVID-19. Of course, Daesh and many other terrorist organizations were trying to figure their approach and their strategy in terms of how they can expand. And of course, not just talking about many areas in Africa where there is absence of governance, but even in those places where governance exists, um, you know, the quality of governance remains a very important issue to ask. So this continued to become a, a negating factor for the proliferation of Daesh and of course, ISWAP and other splinter groups in the Northeast. We have seen them with different names. We have seen them with different mode of operation. This operation will continue to change with advantages. A drop in attacks and fatality figures in the lecture, which is a good news. But unfortunately, it is only good news in the short term. Because what is happening, like we said, is they are succeeding in winning the hearts and minds of people. And it may be good news in the short term, the drop in civilian fatalities, but it is very dangerous in the long term because these groups are building their capacity to launch even more audacious attacks on the security forces and governments across the lectured region. Bulama, thank you so much. And you raise like really critical points, right? There's a clear change and shift in some of the trends that we're observing from ISWAP in the region. And of course, you highlighted this operating in silence and also this more concentrated focus on the Northeast region. So my question then is, is, so what does this mean then for prevention and countervailing extremism efforts? You know, in light of not getting, being on the headlines, uh, in light of these new trends and other priorities on the horizons, which also brings about a lot of other challenges, what does this then mean for our efforts in countering ISWAP and other affiliated groups? Yes, I, I think we, we, we can view this in two different ways. One is the short-term um, approach and the second, of course, the long-term. The short-term is, of course, how um, can government and other agencies invest in intelligence gathering and to make sure that while these issues are going loose on the ground, they are also very much tracked so that we don't lose control of them, of course, and uh, making sure that people are, you know, given opportunity to be as they want to be. Uh, sure, I, I completely agree uh, with Abdul Qadir's uh, points. I would make uh, three broad uh, points uh, regarding the lessons. Uh, the lecture region can uh, leverage more, but also others uh, can learn from. And the first is that bombs and bullets, obviously, can only kill terrorists, but cannot kill terrorism uh, and the ideology uh, driving it. 
Uh, and over the last 12, 13 years, the Lake Chad region is a clear testimony that that's the case. Unfortunately, after 13 years, these groups are only growing bigger in terms of their territorial expansion. We have been speaking about the North Central and the Northwest, uh, where even when Boko Haram started, it did not have cells, but it now has resident cells in those uh, areas. That tells us that military might alone cannot kill this problem. And therefore, what you need is a holistic approach. And this holistic approach is something Abdul Qadir had uh, spoken to. The security effort is necessary, especially these groups are attacking civilians or at least trying to upset our way of life or topple our government. So security efforts are necessary. But in addition to security efforts, while security efforts are ongoing, you also need preventative efforts, especially working with religious and traditional leaders on the ground, working with community-based organizations and civil society organizations on the ground to discourage young people from joining these groups. Because as long as the supply of fighters continues to flow in, you might kill thousands and thousands every year, but the problem would continue. And therefore, cutting off the supply, the supply of men and young people who are joining them is critical. The second is cutting off their supply of arms, food, fuel, and ammunition. They produce some of their ammunition. They produce some of their food, but their fuel comes from outside the territory where they control. Their medicine or drugs come from outside the territory. Some of their food comes from outside the territory, and their money comes from outside. And of course, when they spend their money, they need to take it outside the territory. In other words, you need concerted effort in terms of border security, uh, especially across the Lake Chad region, because no country can succeed on its own. Uh, of course, the preventative efforts are very important, but I think we mentioned civil society organizations, human, uh, humanitarian organizations, they cannot do it alone. And the most important player are governments. And to start to show that democracy can deliver dividends for the people by building infrastructure, building good education, building an economy that will provide alternative economic incentives away from these extremist groups. Unless and until we do that, we might continue to kill those who have joined, but more will join. And unfortunately, the problem uh, would continue. Excellent, excellent recommendations and reflections. And I think those listening will really appreciate it. And also, as Balama rightfully pointed them, there are lots of resources out there. So do stay tuned and look out for some of those publications uh, that are out on the issues in West Africa and the Sahel. Uh, and I want to thank you both so much for your time and for really helping to unpack the complexity of the topic, but also looking at what is the bigger picture. Thank you for listening. We hope that this episode has been enriching and has increased your understanding of the efforts put in place to fight ISWAP and its affiliates. But unfortunately, that's it for today's episode and for this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West Africa edition. Over this series, we've been joined by world-renowned experts, regionally-based practitioners and academics, amongst others, to delve into the threats that we face in the region as a result of terrorism and to better understand the difference between what ISWAP says and what it does by showing the group for what it really is. We've looked at the group's hollow claims about itself and how really it's been used to support the aims of the terrorist organization in other countries. We've heard how ISWAP is worried about raising finances and how its financial flows are being disrupted. We've looked at how ordinary men and women can help dismantle the terror group and the extraordinary determination of local people to resist the influence of these groups. 
And we've also discussed some of the government and organizations who are making a real difference by supporting people in the region because tackling terror takes more than military operation and security responses. Thank you all for joining us on this journey and especially all of the experts. I hope having discussed how ISWAP operates and what's being done to stop them in their tracks, we've punctured some of the myths around the group, made them less intimidating and reduced their appeal as a result. It's been a pleasure to host you for this series. If you've enjoyed it, be sure to tell your colleagues, friends and family members to tune in. And if you've missed an episode, you can find the podcast available to listen to on major streaming platforms. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.